Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. We are finally winding down here with our series on the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes and her Silicon Valley startup, Theranos. I want to say a few things about this podcast before we get started. This is an independent ad-free show, which means I rely on the help of the listeners, that's you, to continue creating content. And I know you're wondering, how can I help? Well, you can start by leaving the show a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. That helps drive us up the charts and it gets us more visibility. And I do get people who tell me that they found California Dreaming while searching for new shows on their apps. So somewhere out there in the algorithm universe, they found us. You can also like the Facebook page. You can leave a review there too. You can join the discussion group and follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. You can also recommend the show in true crime discussion and fan groups. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can become a member of Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, your membership will unlock dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses that you can't hear anywhere else. There are some one-and-done episodes as well as multi-parters. It's countless hours of content. Every patron gets bonus content every month, not just the $5, $10 tiers. Unless you, for some reason, customize your membership for less than a dollar, then no, you don't get anything. And this week, I would like to thank Allie B, Lisa M, Cindy B, Pamela G, Thalia, Desiree F, Deborah M, Cynthia D, and Rebecca Jane for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or making a one-time donation through PayPal. And right now, I do have a giveaway going on. I have 10 exclusive, limited-time California Dreaming keychains to give away to the next 10 people who join Patreon, raise their pledge, or send a donation. And I believe I have about five or six more left, so you'll get that keychain along with a couple of other little gifts and a thank you card for your support. And if a monthly subscription just isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the treat jar through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Also, please listen past the end of this episode to hear a promo from a podcast you might be interested in called True Crime Cat Lawyer. Lawyer by day, crazy cat lady by night, Elise and her co-host Winston have new episodes every Thursday about crimes focused in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. All right, let's get going with this 13th part of A Girl Boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. The sources of this episode include the book by Wall Street journalist John Kerry Rue called Bad Blood, as well as several online articles and documents about this case. Everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. Okay, let's get going. So to recap the last part of the series, in part 12, John Kerry Rue's devastating investigative article on Theranos was published in the Wall Street Journal on October 15, 2015. We went over many of the allegations made in the article and followed up with Theranos' press release rebuttal, but the damage was done. The article set off an avalanche of bad press for Theranos and Elizabeth, and she was forced into damage control mode and attack mode. We heard her speak out, the very same day as the article on CNBC, 
doing everything that she could to try and get ahead of the story. Even going so far as to show up at the journal's tech conference the following week and having the nerve to call them a tabloid at their own event. I played that CNBC interview for you. We also, for the first time, touched on a rare, vulnerable side of Elizabeth, where we first heard about her having survived a sexual assault back in 2003 while at Stanford. It was never brought up publicly until Elizabeth's trial in late 2021, when she talked about it to the jury for the first time, though she contemplated using her story as a means of garnering sympathy in the wake of Carrie Ruth's articles, which she ended up not doing. We left off with what was going to happen next for Elizabeth and Theranos, and what can possibly be done to stop them. Back towards the beginning of the series, we were introduced briefly to a Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services compliance inspector named Gary Yamamoto. He had paid an unannounced visit to Theranos in 2012 and ended up giving Sonny the business about running a lab and all the rules and regulations that they weren't following. Well, Gary reappeared in the narrative just a few weeks before John Kerry Rue's expose on Theranos was published. And John actually had no idea this was going on in the background as he was getting ready for his article to go live. You see, towards the end of September, Gary received an email. It had CMS complaint Theranos in the subject line. According to John's book, the email started off like this. Dear Gary, I've been nervous to send or even write this letter. Theranos takes confidentiality and secrecy to an extreme level that has always made me scared to say anything. I'm ashamed of myself for not filing this complaint sooner. The sender of this email was none other than Ms. Erica Chung. And in this email, Erica made a number of assertions regarding lab practices, everything from professional misconduct to reckless, messy, and careless lab work. She also stated that blood analyzers that are Theranos' proprietary technology regularly failed to produce accurate results, that the lab employees were ordered to fudge on the proficiency testings, and that they deceived the inspector who visited the lab when that inspector was shown only one of the two labs that were actually located in the building, and that the lab shown to the inspector had only other blood analyzers from other manufacturers. None of Theranos' analyzers were in that lab. Towards the end of her email, Erica stated that she had to quit because she could not allow herself to be a part of the lies and deceptions especially when Theranos began running blood tests on real patients, knowing that they could be delivering erroneous and false results to people, potentially leading to a disastrous outcome, was more than Erica could handle. Well, the email was alarming enough for Gary Yamamoto to take it to his managers, and all of them agreed that they needed to initiate another POP visit for an unannounced checkup at Theranos' labs, and they needed to make it happen ASAP. Erica's email came in on a Saturday towards the end of September of 2015. So just a couple of days later on Tuesday, September 22nd, Gary, along with a colleague named Sarah Bennett, 
who worked out of the CMS offices based in San Francisco. They appeared at Theranos' lab, which was then located in Newark. The last time Gary visited back in 2012, they were still at the old Facebook headquarters, and the lab was at the same location. This time, the headquarters was located in the Stanford Research Park, and the lab was across the bay. When Gary and Sarah got to the entrance, Theranos security people, they either resembled the Secret Service or the Men in Black, as they were clad all in the latest in security guard couture, black suits, dark glasses, and earpieces. Gary and Sarah were stopped at the entrance or in the lobby, and they were told that they were not allowed in the lab. Just not yet. I really don't think that anybody can deny these inspectors entry, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think that they could just push their way past security just like that. I'm not too up on what authority these various agencies and their inspectors have and whatnot. The only other case that I can think of offhand that I covered where state inspectors were involved was the Sausage King episode that we did. I was just reminded of that recently when somebody asked about the case. It involved a gentleman by the name of Stuart Alexander. He was the guy who inherited the sausage factory from his family in San Leandro, California. He felt as though the four inspectors, who were the ones assigned to inspect his factory, were harassing him. He insisted that they'd been making the sausage the same way for decades and they weren't about to change a thing. The things that the inspectors dinged him for were the temperatures that the meats were being cooked at, properly cleaning and maintaining equipment, requiring the factory machinery to be updated, along with various other public health issues. On two occasions, the inspectors shut him down, but Stewart would reopen anyway. And there was no way that Stewart could deny these people entry into the factory, but there came a time when they showed up while he wasn't actually in the facility at the time, and the inspectors were allowed in by another employee. But when Stewart showed up and found them inside, he ordered them off of his property, at which point the inspectors and Stewart both made phone calls to the police. However, while they were waiting for police to arrive at the scene, Stewart went into his office, he retrieved a gun, and he killed three out of the four compliance inspectors. So yeah, I'm fairly certain that if Sonny tried to stop these people from coming in, that they would be able to also call the police and compel them to allow them into the building. And I say Sunny because I know this isn't Elizabeth's department. She always sends in her little Gucci loafer clad troll to handle the dirty work. So the men in black were only able to stall the inspectors by asking them to wait in a small conference room adjacent to the lobby while they decided what they were going to do with these inspectors next. Sonny, of course, arrived with a small entourage. He would have probably had more if this hadn't been a surprise visit. So Sonny didn't have his superhero lawyer, David Boys, with him, who most likely couldn't come on such short notice. But he had Theranos' general counsel, Heather King. I guess maybe that would be a sort of in-house attorney. And from Boyce's law firm, Sonny also had with him Meredith Dearborn, 
and his number three guy, the brains of the operation, Theranos' vice president, Daniel Young. The inspectors were then escorted to a different conference room that was bigger and equipped with audio and visual equipment because they were going to try and get away with showing them a PowerPoint instead of showing them the actual laboratory. While the inspectors didn't want or care to see the PowerPoint, they went along with it anyway, but they were wise to what Sonny was trying to do. So once they were shown the PowerPoint presentation, it was back to business. They insisted to be taken to the lab. Four additional men in black showed up to escort everybody there, while Heather and Meredith trailed behind, doing the best that they could with walking at the same time as holding up an open laptop and typing things with one hand. In order to enter the lab, it required a fingerprint scan. The door was unlocked and the two inspectors got to work. They had planned on inspecting the building over the course of two days, but because there was so much basic paperwork that they needed to review that was either missing or not available, they were going to have to come back for a second visit. Sunny asked if they could schedule the next visit a couple of months from then, and they went ahead and agreed on that visit being in the middle of November. And that would take place after the publication of John Kerry Ruth's investigative article. So when Gary and Sarah returned for that second visit in November, they arrived under a new kind of pressure because now the allegations against Theranos had been made public, and it was really up to them if they were going to make a move to compel Theranos to bring themselves into compliance. Otherwise, they were going to have to take some drastic steps and levy some sanctions against the company. It was obvious that since the first visit and the article being published, that Theranos had greatly eased up on all the security protocols. All I can say is that I guess it's because the cat is out of the bag, so the men in black can go back to their day jobs tracking alien activity on planet Earth. Elizabeth made a surprise guest appearance at the second visit also, along with her wrong-hand man, Sonny, and attorney, Heather King. But Elizabeth had some other people there with her that weren't there the first time. A set of new attorneys, as well as some professional laboratory consultants. Gary made his way through the various rooms within the lab and asked some of the members of the lab staff a barrage of questions. All the while, Sonny was trailing behind him. So, you know, I can't say for sure, but I would be willing to bet that those lab employees who were getting grilled by Gary may not have been as forthcoming as they would have been if Sonny wasn't hovering around with that stupid scowl on his face, giving everybody side eye and dirty looks, hoping that his presence intimidates these people into continuing the cover up and the lies. While Gary was inspecting and questioning, Sarah was in a conference room where she had set up to work on her computer as the inspection went along, making sure that they documented everything. Several lawyers remained in the room with Sarah at all times, and this visit was going to be twice as long as the first one. It was going to be over the course of four days. There was one more thing Sarah needed to do as a part of her visit. She wanted to speak to one lab technician who was specifically assigned to the Normandy lab, and that's the lab with all of the Theranos analyzers in it. 
Sarah wanted to ask questions of someone who was familiar with the Edison inside and out. She was brought into a tiny room with no windows to wait for quite some time. I don't exactly know how long, but John described it as a long time. So you probably can guess what's happening. At least we can assume. Whoever they are going to send in to answer her questions is likely being prepped on how to answer her questions. There's only so much that you can do when the pressure is on like that. So eventually a lab employee came in to speak to Sarah. And it was clear from the look on this lab employee's face that she was terrified. And she definitely had been given hasty instructions as to what to say and what not to say. So John, Carrie Rue, he really hadn't kept in regular touch with Erica following that incident at her new place of employment where someone was waiting for her in the parking lot on a Friday evening after work to serve her with papers. That incident really spooked her. And that was towards the end of June of 2015. So John was still up to his eyeballs with his work looking into Theranos. When he caught wind of the September visit and the follow-up November visit, he didn't know that those two inspections were set in motion because of Erica's email to Gary Yamamoto. So for the next several months, getting into the early weeks of 2016, John tried really hard to find out how much dirt those inspections dug up on Theranos, but it wasn't easy. Everyone was still keeping pretty tight-lipped about it. He did hear some rumors that came down the current slash former employee grapevine that the inspection was as bad as anyone could have expected. By the end of January, John managed to get enough information to put together an article about it that he published on the 24th of January, and it read in part, U.S. health inspectors have found a series of deficiencies at Theranos's lab in Northern California, according to people familiar with the matter. The problems were found during an inspection by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the chief federal regulator of clinical labs at the blood testing company's facility in Newark, California. Failing to fix the problems could put the Theranos lab at risk of suspension from the Medicare program. A spokesperson for Theranos said that they do not have the report from last year's regularly scheduled CMS audit of its California lab, but said that the company has continued its ongoing work to build the best-in-class systems and engage in partnerships with its regulators. The problems observed by regulators were far more severe than those cited by CMS following its last inspection of the same lab in December of 2013. But Theranos said that it promptly resolved those matters. Theranos has already stopped collecting tiny samples of blood from patients' fingers for all but one of its tests while it waits for the FDA to review the company's applications for wider use of the proprietary vials called nanotainers. In October, the FDA said that it determined the nanotainers were an uncleared medical device. Since then, Theranos has been performing just one test to detect herpes using its device, the Edison. Theranos is using traditional machines for the rest of the more than 200 tests that it offers to customers. The company also outsources some tests to outside labs. Theranos is suffering losses on some of those tests. The company declined to comment on the volume or financial terms of the tests handled by outside labs. The blood testing company's labs contain 
its proprietary Edison machines, and conventional devices bought from third-party companies. But during the CMS inspection in 2013, the inspectors never saw the Edison machines. Outside attorney David Boyce told the journal last July that the inspectors did not ask to see the part of the lab where the Edisons were located. And Dreamers, we know that that's because that they, those Edisons were inside a separate clandestine lab that the inspectors were unaware even existed. Otherwise, they would have asked to have seen it. So what David Boyes meant to say was that Theranos hid the lab that had the Edisons in it. They instructed everybody to stay away from it and to not come and go from it. Don't even insinuate that there is a second hidden lab to anyone at any time while the inspectors were on the premises. When it came to Walgreens, the article said that in recent weeks, Walgreens has debated whether to close the wellness centers and the results of the latest inspection by the CMS could lead the retailer to take an even harder look at what remains of its partnership with Theranos. Since October, meaning since John's article, Walgreens has had their people contact Elizabeth and her people try to figure out what the heck is going on, but they were left with very little in the way of meaningful answers to their questions. Then the article gets into how the partnership agreement between the companies was handled pretty shadily, and we talked about that earlier in this series, with former Walgreens CFO Wade McLeon not really being on the up and up about the negotiations with Theranos, he wasn't being totally upfront about the deal. He was being very vague and secretive. Up to and including at the executive level, he wasn't telling anybody. People close to the matter have confirmed that in the more than two years since the first wellness center opened, Theranos has made no revenue for Walgreens. And they loaned Theranos $50 million on top of the money that they spent clearing space in all of their stores for wellness centers. Walgreens has indicated that pulling out of the contract would be a very difficult move, but if the CMS inspection turns out to be bad, which we know that it will, Walgreens may have to reconsider, which we know that they will. Then the article gets into the nitty-gritty about outsourcing some of the blood tests to other labs. It reads, Theranos has told Walgreens it is outsourcing only highly complex tests collected at its stores to outside labs, including the University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF, and ARUP Labs, which is affiliated with the University of Utah. Walgreens was told that Theranos tested moderately complex patient samples at its own labs. Since mid-November of 2013, Theranos has sent more than 1,200 test orders to UCSF according to lab records. Theranos hadn't outsourced any tests to that lab since at least July, records show. Tests done on behalf of Theranos by UCSF include some of the most common blood tests ordered during routine doctor's visits, such as blood counts and screening for prostate-specific antigens. UCSF charges Theranos more than $300 for a comprehensive metabolic panel. Theranos' website shows that patients who get the same test done at one of the company's blood draw sites pay just $7.19. A comparison of all the tests done by UCSF for Theranos shows that the company appears to be incurring losses on many of those tests, 
And we already knew that. We discussed that back when I mentioned that Theranos wasn't getting any good results on a test that they had that was kind of a do-it-yourself at-home version of a test that they were doing, but it was available to the public on the market. I can't remember off the top of my head which test it was for. It was like a do-it-yourself at-home test. It was either for HIV or possibly hepatitis C. So what the lab techs were doing was ordering bulk supplies of those DIY tests, which were really expensive, which made Sunny one angry little fella. And I talked about how they were going to bankrupt themselves if they kept going at that rate. There was nothing about the way that Theranos was running things that could justify the prices that they were listing on their online menu for everyday, regularly ordered blood tests. A few days after John's article about the CMS inspection, the agency sent a letter to Theranos telling them that they had 10 days to shape up because it was determined that the company posed immediate jeopardy to patient health and safety. And that's a direct quote from their letter. And if they don't get into compliance fast, they're going to lose their certification. So that was just about as bad as it could possibly get. Being told that their company posed immediate jeopardy to health and safety. Significant problems that needed to be fixed in 10 days or else. Sunny and Elizabeth were about to get their first introduction to the banishment pit. As soon as Theranos got the 10-day warning, all of the demand letters that the Wall Street Journal had been receiving from their attorneys following the publication of every single one of John's articles to print retractions, all of those letters stopped coming. Theranos' attorneys were no longer asking him to knock it off. And that's a pretty big indicator that things are going very wrong. Theranos tried to play it off, all coy, like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. We're aware of the problems. And according to their spokespeople, Theranos had addressed all of them. They claimed to have taken care of all of the deficiencies in the lab and the things that the CMS wrote in their 121-page report. And they insisted that this is not how the lab is currently situated. Theranos also said that the issues that they were cited for are all about day-to-day -day lab operations. The problems that they were cited for lay within the running of the lab, not with anything that had to do with Theranos' technology. And that's a lie. And it wasn't easy for John to get his hands on the CMS report either. I mean, it's online now for all to see, but Theranos kept crying trade secrets and demanded to not allow this report to become public. But like many journalists, John had a connection at the federal level who was able to access the report. And at first, that source of John's wasn't really willing to just send him the report but instead he read some of the highlights to him over the phone. But you know, for John, that's not nearly enough. He wants everything. But in the meantime, he would take what he could get. And it was while John was listening to the report being read that he came across one of the most serious problems the inspection found with Theranos' labs. According to John, the lab was continuing to run a blood clotting test for several months despite having repeated failures when it came to quality control and indications that that test was faulty. I believe I mentioned this test in the last part. It's called the prothrombin time. 
it's an equation that tells you how long it takes that sample, that particular sample that's being tested, how long that blood takes to clot. It is very dangerous for the lab to get this test wrong because doctors depend on those results when they decide on the dosage a patient at risk for strokes should be taking when prescribing a blood thinning medication. If the doctor prescribes too much blood thinners, a person can bleed out. If the doctor prescribes too little, it potentially increases the risk of that patient suffering a fatal blood clot. While there was little Theranos could do to spin that into something less of a public relations nightmare, all they could really do was continue to try and insist that their technology was sound and not the cause of the problem, and that is still a lie. John was anxious to get his hands on that CMS report, so he ended up filing a Freedom of Information Act request, and he wanted it on the double. Heather King continued to throw around at least one or two of her favorite R-words, retract and redact. She was demanding that the CMS heavily redact the report in order to protect these so-called trade secrets. The problem is, is that the trade secrets are the problem and the public has the right to know. This was apparently the very first time that a lab that was coming under fire and was under threat of losing their federal certifications and was under threat of being forced to shut down had actually demanded that the agency heavily redact the report on their inspection. And the CMS seemed to really not know what to do about it. So John was pretty worried that he was never going to be able to see the full report, especially if Theranos got their way and much of it was redacted. In the meantime, Elizabeth was still carrying on, moving forward as if nothing was wrong. As she was getting ready to host a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton, who was running for president at the time, the election was to be later on that year. The fundraiser was going to be at the Theranos headquarters. And not only had Elizabeth become chums with the Clintons, she was also pretty good friends with Chelsea, their daughter. The fundraising ended up not being at the headquarters, but instead at the home of a fellow tech mogul. And there is apparently a picture out there somewhere of Elizabeth and Chelsea. I searched for it and, well, I paused my writing at the time and I looked on Google and I found it. And I just thought it was a little bit interesting that in all the months of the story, I hadn't actually seen that particular photo because I looked at a lot. But yeah, it's out there and I'll post it on social media so you don't have to waste your time like I wasted mine. But anyway, at this point, not only was John thinking that he wasn't going to ever see the CMS report in its entirety, he was also wondering if it was possible that Elizabeth was so well-connected, especially politically, that somehow she might actually be able to slip, skip, shuffle, slide, and swerve her way around all of her problems. John just didn't know, considering all the powerful people Lizzie had in her pocket. But you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the money. And Elizabeth is on her way to falling on some hard financial times. She's not exactly going to be showing up at the welfare or the unemployment office, but the house that Elizabeth built was beginning to show many, many cracks. John Carey Rue was impatient. So he hit up his connection inside the federal government 
and managed to coax the report out of him. Finally, John got to see the whole thing with his own eyeballs. I saw it with my own eyeballs too, and it was long, boring, repetitive, complicated, and annoying. Sort of like this show was in the beginning. I thought about trying to go through it, but at this point, I sort of have Theranos fatigue, so we'll just go with what John had to say about the report, and he simply called it damning. We already knew that. You just can't operate a business the way Elizabeth and Sonny were and expect to come out the other end of this smelling like roses. It basically confirmed that Elizabeth was a liar, is a liar, and has been lying to everyone and everybody for years. The reports found that the Edison ran 12 tests. Whether those tests were reliable, it's a crapshoot, because the data that Theranos had on hand at the time of the inspection revealed that the Edison had imparted outrageously abnormal and erratic results. The other 238 tests that were listed on Theranos' online menu were all run on the other commercial blood analyzers. It showed that Theranos was failing to pass quality control tests as much as one-third of the time. In fact, according to the document, there was one particular test, the one that measures a hormone that is related to the levels of testosterone in a person's system, that quality control test was failed 87% of the time, and that's a whopping number, especially when you're talking about biomedicine and the healthcare industry. That's a huge margin of error. The prostate cancer quality control test failed 22% of the time, and that is a lot less than the testosterone test, but still, that's a huge percentage. The Edisons were also producing results that were off by as much as 146% when compared to the same tests ran on the same samples on a conventional blood analyzer side by side with the Edison. And the Edisons were incapable of producing the results on their own. And if you recall the discussion that we had about the coefficient of variation, the standard is for it to be around 2 to 3%. So 146% is just absurd. And for one of the most common tests ran, the test for B12 being run on the Edison, the coefficient of variation was coming up anywhere between 34 and 48%. The lab itself, according to the CMS report, was a train wreck, a dumpster fire, a train wrecking into a dumpster fire. People were working in the lab who were not qualified to do so. People were handling patient blood samples who should not have been handling anything. Blood was being stored at the wrong temperatures. The lab was allowing reagents to go past their expiration dates, and it was not reporting to patients when they had erroneous and inaccurate results. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. In all, the CMS found 45 deficiencies that Theranos needed to correct in that 10-day time frame. When Heather King found out that John had the report, she tried stopping him from publishing it. But you know that was not going to happen. John published that report along with an article about it so fast that Heather King didn't stand a chance. She may have fired off one of her retraction letters, but her efforts were fruitless. And I'm pretty sure she was just as busy updating her LinkedIn and getting her resume dusted off 
and out there to potential new clients because she was on a rapidly sinking ship and she knew it. A couple of days later, John received a copy of a new letter from CMS to Theranos pointing out that of the 45 things that they found wrong, Theranos had only corrected two of them. And this letter contained a new threat. Get on it or else Elizabeth was going to be banned from the blood testing industry for a period of two years. Theranos tried keeping the letter from going public, but it was leaked to John as soon as it was sent and he reported on it as fast as he could. It was becoming more and more difficult for Elizabeth to continue trying to pretend like every little thing was going to be all right. But Elizabeth being Elizabeth next went on the Today Show to talk to Maria Shriver and it was during this interview that Elizabeth expressed her devastation at what was being reported in the media about her company. But she stopped short of issuing any sort of apology most notably to any of the patients who had their blood drawn at Theranos Wellness Centers inside Walgreens. I don't think there's ever been any sort of apology from her, ever. And I mean, she might issue one at her sentencing, but I mean, we're jumping ahead here, and I don't think it's as much of a spoiler, but you know Elizabeth was convicted a few months back on four counts of fraud but she was acquitted on any charges related to anything that had to do with patients. So technically she could apologize to patients because all of those charges she's already been acquitted of. So if she wanted to at least apologize to them, she could. She doesn't necessarily have to apologize to her investors because of course she's going to want to appeal those convictions. All of those things that she was convicted of had to do with the money on the investor side of things that she lied to defraud investors. But anyway, I watched some of the interview with Mira Shriver and frankly, it's kind of boring and I didn't have the patience to sit through it all. But John's takeaways was that Elizabeth was contrite and disingenuous. I mean, what do you expect from a person that can't even bring her own voice or her own identity to the table? If you ask me, I said this before and I'll say it again, Lizzie should have gone into acting or modeling or influencing. That way she could be as fake and contrite as she wants to be and nobody would care. John didn't think that Elizabeth expressed true remorse, particularly when it came to the patients. I honestly don't know if Elizabeth ever really made the connection fully that what she was doing was potentially harming innocent people. I don't know. We as human beings, we have this sort of thing built into us. We have this caring and compassion that we have for our fellow human beings, usually. We're not superheroes, but you know, Elizabeth in some ways has cast herself as one, someone who is changing the world, saving the world from needles. She had so much to say about wanting people to no longer be afraid. For the experience of getting labs done to be a positive one. For children to not have to be terrified or crying when getting stuck with a needle in the arm. Where's all the compassion for the people who got blood tests indicating that they're either dead or about to be dead? What about that fear? It does make us feel like everything was an act. An act designed to make Lizzie a billionaire. That was the goal. 
from age 10. And by the way, every single person associated with Theranos, all of their employees, all of their partners, their board of directors, and their investors, and probably much of the executive staff, everyone became aware of the CMS inspection with the 45 deficiencies by reading about it in the Wall Street Journal. Elizabeth went to exactly nobody and disclosed what was going on. Not one single person that Elizabeth had so carefully indoctrinated into all of this heard the news straight from her. They'd all believed in her and trusted her. So the question remains, how long would everyone stand by Elizabeth? Well, we'll see as we go along here. So that May of 2016, John went back to California to see if he could get in touch with Tyler Schultz. They had only been communicating in the past through fake emails and burner phones. So John had no idea how to contact Tyler directly other than going to see him in person. It had been nearly a year since they last saw one another. And John had found out from Erica where Tyler was working. So he went over there and he snooped around and asked some questions as a reporter does. And he was able to track Tyler down on the Stanford campus where he was working on nanotechnology. John didn't show up like totally out of nowhere because Erica had provided Tyler with an actual email address that was his and valid. And John did write to him telling him that he was going to go back to California and wanted to meet up. But Tyler was kind of not willing to nail down a time to meet. So that's when John just showed up randomly. So the two did go out to lunch and they talked. Tyler seemed to be doing well and filled John in as to what he was up to. Tyler had joined a research team at Stanford and was actually trying to develop a thing for a competition. His team was trying to build a portable device that could diagnose a laundry list of diseases by examining a person's saliva, blood, and their vitals. Eventually, John segued into discussing Theranos, and he could see that the topic was very uncomfortable for Tyler. Well, being in public talking about it was the problem. So they went back to the Stanford campus and found an empty classroom where they could talk privately. But Tyler was still uneasy about the topic, and he told John that his attorney ordered him to not speak to him anymore. But Tyler really couldn't help himself. He was carrying around a huge burden, and it was getting too heavy for him to bear. John promised that everything would be off the record, and he would only use this information that he told him at that meeting in the future, only if it was okay with Tyler. Tyler told John about being bushwhacked by Theranos' attorneys at his grandpa's house, and how following that, Tyler was hit with a barrage of threats for months on end. The attorneys terrorized him, threatened to sue him, and to bankrupt his family in the process if he didn't stop talking to John, and disclose who else was talking to the reporter. But Tyler told John that he stood his ground. He weathered the whole thing without ever giving in, without ever signing anything or disclosing any confidential sources. Though his parents did spend more than $400,000 in attorney fees in helping to defend Tyler against Theranos, ultimately, 
It was Tyler's courage and steadfastness that got him through. And John was very, very grateful for that because if not for Tyler, John may not have ever broken the story. The gratitude that John was feeling soon gave way to waves of guilt for what Tyler was made to endure. And that wasn't even the worst part of it all. It was the rift that all of this caused between Tyler and Grandpa. At the time of this meeting in May of 2016, George Schultz was still very much standing by Elizabeth, regardless of the things that were coming out in the Wall Street Journal in the past seven months. And every other publication was reporting on this as well. It wasn't just the journal. Every news outlet picked up on John's story and ran a story about it in their own newspapers and magazines and online publications. So this was basically everywhere. Tyler had not seen his grandfather in more than a year, and he hadn't spoken to him directly either. In fact, the only way the two of them were communicating was through their attorneys. In December of 2015, Grandpa had turned 95. A huge party was hosted at a penthouse that the Schultzes owned in San Francisco. Elizabeth received an invite, but Tyler did not. Tyler's mom and dad had told him that his grandpa was still banking on the promises that Elizabeth had made, the promises that Theranos had made. And grandpa assured Tyler's parents that it was only a matter of time before Elizabeth was going to come with a big reveal to show the world that Theranos is everything that she said it was and would be. After many, many years of refusing to go public with the technology, Elizabeth was apparently going to finally do it, put it on full display for the world to see. She was going to share how the technology worked at an event called the American Association for Clinical Chemistry that was scheduled for August 1st, 2016. Grandpa was certain once everybody saw the technology and Elizabeth's presentation that all of that would shut down the head shakers, the cynics, the skeptics, the naysayers, all of them would be silenced for good. Tyler still didn't get why Grandpa was so drunk on the Kool-Aid. My personal opinion, it's because he's older. I don't know him, but from my experience, which I don't have a whole lot of when it comes to elderlies, but rumor has it that they can be kind of stubborn. They don't like to be wrong. And this also has to do with all the hype. Elizabeth, it's her. She's the hype and all the fluff. And she's all about money. She's everything that it takes to turn an otherwise intelligent, respected, wealthy statesman with storied careers like Grandpa's into lambs. But still, I get it. I get how Grandpa went from negotiating the Cold War and the Iran-Contra affair to becoming entangled with a janky-ass company like Theranos. It's baffling, but I get it. When John and Tyler were finished, Tyler did express his gratitude to John for getting the story and the truth out there for the world to know. Theranos had dominated Tyler's life for the better part of four years, and he was finally feeling like he was being seen and heard, even if not by his own grandpa. John was equally grateful to Tyler for pushing through the threats and the intimidation and standing up to the pressure that he was under as a result of becoming one of John's most important whistleblowers that got 
the ball rolling on this case. And just so you can get an idea of how far Theranos was willing to go to try and protect themselves from the truth being revealed, shortly after John and Tyler met up, attorneys for Theranos contacted Tyler's attorneys and told them that they knew that he and John had met in person. Nobody had told anybody that they were meeting. Even Tyler didn't know that John was coming to see him that day, yet somehow Theranos immediately found out. So Tyler and John figured that they were being followed still, which I think is troubling and weird, but neither one of them seemed too worried about it. In fact, Tyler said next time, he'll just take a selfie with John and send it to Lizzie to save her the trouble of hiring more private investigators. Jokes aside, John and Tyler were convinced that Theranos was probably having him and Erica and Adam Rosendorf followed for the better part of the last year, possibly even more. So, you know I brought up that interview that Elizabeth did with Maria Shriver. Well, when she did that, she did say that she was taking responsibility for all of the things that they were found to be in violation of after the CMS inspection. However, Elizabeth would not be the one who was going to fall on the sword. Actually, you know what? That sounds a little bit too noble. Let me rephrase. Elizabeth was not going to be the one tossed into the banishment pit of former employees. No, not Liz. That would be Sonny. Off with his Gucci's. John kind of made it sound like Elizabeth was the one who made that decision, and it was rooted in an attempt to save herself from the banishment. That she hastily broke up with Sonny and fired him, though... I'm not sure in what order, not that I care. But a press release followed shortly thereafter and framed Sonny's departure as his official retirement. At this point, however, I don't know how much of a spin Elizabeth can continue putting on anything moving forward because it's really like this domino effect. Once that article toppled out of John Carreyrou onto the pages of one of the most reputable newspapers in the country, there was no stopping them from falling one right after the other. One week after Sunny was dumped and fired, Theranos voided two years' worth of tests that were run on the Edison. Tens of thousands of blood tests were scrapped in what feels like a desperate move on Theranos' part to bring themselves back from the brink of being banned from the industry by CMS by attempting to get themselves into compliance. So what John Carreyrou saw this move as being was an admission of guilt, pretty much. By voiding all of their tests, Theranos is saying, yeah, no, we didn't run a single blood test on a proprietary device that could be considered reliable. I don't know why Theranos and their attorneys think that they can keep these super drastic moves a secret from John, because he's basically on top of everything. Elizabeth made an effort to keep the voided tests under wraps, but John had his trusty source with the feds and he pretty much finds out stuff as soon as Elizabeth does. And while all of this meth was going on with Elizabeth's kingdom, back over in Chicago, her soon-to-be ex-BFFs at Walgreens were getting hit with the stunning news that every blood test that they ever took at their stores was invalid. The executives, who were in so tight with Lizzie, weren't feeling the love anymore. They had been trying to get in touch with her since, like, forever ago, and she's totally icing them out. A couple of weeks later, Walgreens cut ties with Theranos, ending their partnership and shuttering all wellness centers as of June 12, 2016. 
And with that, the next domino fell. Less than three weeks later, in the first week of July of 2016, the CMS banned Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos from operating a clinical laboratory. That was the next domino. Next, the United States Attorney's Office in San Francisco opened a criminal investigation into Theranos. That was the next domino. And then the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, had also initiated a civil probe into Theranos. And that was the next domino. And while the world is playing dominoes versus Elizabeth, she got what she hoped was an ace up her sleeve by finally standing up and demonstrating Theranos' technology for the whole world to come and see. Can she wow the masses? Let's find out. Picture it. Philadelphia, August 2016. It's a sticky, stuffy, mucked-up summer day in the city of brotherly love. Thousands of citizens have gathered in the grand ballroom of the Pennsylvania Convention Center. Well, it was like 2,500 people, but I was just trying to drama it up. Those 2,500 were mostly scientists, so you know this rager is going to be lit. They were there to see Elizabeth attempt to desperately turn things around for her floundering company. Her entrance theme? Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. In that song, in the lyrics of the song, the devil talks of all the misfortunes throughout history where he is the protagonist of the story. And in the song, the devil asks for understanding. Otherwise, he will damn the souls of those who don't to hell. So yeah, that was the long and short of Elizabeth's chosen entrance music. Anyway, people were not pleased that Elizabeth was given this forum to speak, and they did not mince words. They wanted her removed from the annual scientific event based on what has been making the rounds in the press about her and her company. But those in charge of the event felt like this was just the kind of publicity that would stir up some interest in the media and get some attention to an event that was as starchy as a science conference could be. But they stuck to their guns and left Elizabeth on the roster. I was really trying to figure out dreamers from reading John's book and some of his articles in the Wall Street Journal if he had actually seen Elizabeth in person and spoken to her. And I believe that it was when he went to this conference that he did for the first time though I couldn't confirm for sure. It sounds like he was. I can't imagine why he wouldn't because that's right in his own backyard. He's based in Manhattan. So it's just a couple of hours drive. He's a journalist and it didn't really matter where she would be speaking. He could have shown up if he had the chance to. But based on what he wrote, I believe this to be the first time he actually seen her speaking in person. But anyway, by the time Elizabeth was making this appearance at this shindig of a science party, she had come up to the lectern and she was no longer wearing the black turtlenecks. She was apparently being mocked for that. And I mean, who wants to be mocked by a bunch of scientists, I guess? I don't actually know who specifically was ridiculing her at the time. It was maybe the media the late night talk show hosts, the Silicon Valley community, whatever the case was, whoever was making fun of who, 
Here we are some six years later, and for me, the most humor I found in the story was Sunny. Just me? No? Anyway. You know Elizabeth isn't a scientist. She's kind of basically like a glorified used car salesperson who just made employee of the month for the third month in a row. And that's what Elizabeth was there at that science party to do. Try and sell these old clunkers that she calls blood analyzers. John described that for over an hour, Elizabeth showed off the mini lab, which was still very much in the developmental stages, the beta stages, the prototype stages, not the ready to go live stages when they started attacking Walgreens customers with it close to three years earlier. There were some upgrades and improvements made since then, but the thing still hadn't gone through a complete clinical trial and a study to provide solid evidence that the thing did work and that it was reliable in a way where it could cover a wide array of tests, the tests that Theranos offered with only a droplet or two of blood. Elizabeth did bring up some data points, but most of it were tests conducted using venipuncture blood draws taken from the patient's arms. There were some finger prick test data, but it only included 11 blood tests, a fraction of what Theranos offered, and that data had not yet been verified either. Now hold up a minute. Didn't Elizabeth just get banished from working in the lab industry for two years? Well, pish tosh, says Elizabeth. If there's a loophole, I'll exploit it. These are mini labs. They are labs in and of themselves. She's not going to shrink ray herself down into this little box and operate the lab by herself. That would be a violation of her being banned from the industry. These labs work independently on their own, connected to wireless servers at Theranos. These labs are going to be placed inside doctors' offices or at a patient's own house. There is no need for a central lab, so no need to worry about Elizabeth running a laboratory. So what is happening here? Elizabeth is pivoting, pivot, pivot, pivoting back to what she was trying to do in the first place before she landed that partnership with Walgreens and suddenly had to improvise by moving forward with the launch of the devices by transporting blood samples from the stores to the Theranos labs where they could be tested on real machines. Maybe. Remember, the idea was to place a mini lab or an Edison in every single Walgreens in the universe, but they never got to that point and just tried winging it until they couldn't. But, you know, things had gotten to the point by the time Elizabeth was making this desperation play. It was just too late. She was never going to get that device anywhere to be used commercially without getting the okay from the FDA. There was no getting around it. It was going to take years for her to conduct the studies that she would need in order to even get to the point where the device would even be considered by the FDA. And she may not have ever gotten there, even if she did try to do things the right way the first time around. But that was never really her plan. Her plan was to skirt the FDA altogether. The odds were forever not in her favor. Being under criminal investigation, along with the SEC probe, it was slim to none. Time had run out. 
But Elizabeth made it through her little show and tell without a hitch. She was confident. She stood tall. She spoke with conviction. And she had the crowd captivated. I mean, her audience was a group of scientists. And she was able to speak their language. She discussed engineering and science as if it was second nature. But she was neither an engineer nor a scientist. But she was able to get up there and be those things to the best of her ability. And it was more of her being able to suspend time and space. To be able to distort everything around her and suspend the existence of practicality in order to draw people into a dimension of her own making. John described Elizabeth as emitting a reality distortion force field. But it didn't last long. The entrancement that the audience was in was shattered as soon as the Q&A part of the presentation began. Elizabeth had three panelists up on the stage with her at the ready to start giving her the business about her mess. One of the panel members was Stephen Master, a professor of pathology at New York's Cornell Medical Center. I don't know if he asked her a question, but he put her on blast by commenting that the minilab was hardly the miracle machine that she was claiming it to be. And when he said that, the audience cheered. If I were Elizabeth, I would be standing there hoping that the earth would open up and swallow me up whole. And that's if I even had the sauciness to get up there in the first place. But Elizabeth kept going. She said that they had to get back to the drawing board and they needed to get with the program. But all in all, she never stumbled, she never lost her poise, and she never apologized, nor did she admit Theranos did anything wrong. Another panelist, a professor of pathology at the University of Hong Kong, asked about the Minilab and how it differed or was an improvement upon the devices that they were already using when testing Walgreens customer samples. And she did a little sidestep and a little spin move to evade the question. And that didn't go without notice because it was kind of a big question to try and get around. But nobody really heckled her. The only time there was any kind of outburst was when Elizabeth was finished and was leaving the stage and someone in the audience shouted out, you hurt people. Needless to say, that presentation did not do what Elizabeth was hoping it would do which was to get the image that the public now had of her and Theranos back into good shape. Because following the conference, the media was harsh and her presentation was panned. Those in the science and medical community viewed the whole thing as a joke. Ridiculous data, amateurish display, they'd seen better last-minute high school presentations. And really, the biggest takeaway was there was nothing avant-garde about the technology. All Theranos was doing was making existing components a little bit smaller and squeezing them all into one small device. And it wasn't working, so there's that. And that was yet another domino that fell. One of the things Elizabeth had demonstrated was the Minilab's testing for the Zika virus. Transmitted mainly by mosquitoes, Zika usually spreads around tropical and subtropical areas of the world and there was an outbreak in South America in 2016 during the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So it was making news at the time of Elizabeth's presentation. 
and she rolled the dice once again with the FDA and applied for authorization to use the Minilab in this emergency situation, as newborn babies around the world were being born with birth defects caused by the Zika virus. But when the FDA found out that Theranos had some major patient safety lapses in the study data that was presented, it essentially forced Theranos to yank their emergency use application. And that was yet another domino that falls. Now, mind you, Elizabeth's investors were still hanging on to hopes that Theranos was built on faith and trust and not just fairy dust because they all wanted something magical to happen after that science conference. And they wanted to see something mystical happen after the Zika mess. But all it did, all Elizabeth did, was shit on their hopes and dreams and money even more so. And one of those investors was ready to jump ship, but not before they were going to sue Theranos. Partner Fund a San Francisco-based investment company had dumped about $100 million into Theranos more than two years earlier. They filed a lawsuit naming Elizabeth, Sonny, and Theranos as defendants in the Court of Chancery in Delaware. And that's just a fancy pants word for Court of Equity. The allegation was that Elizabeth and Sonny were liars, liars, pants on fire, and that they lied in order to deceive them out of their money. They lied and they hid stuff, and so... That was yet another domino that fell. And another investor named Robert Coleman, he filed his lawsuit next in California, alleging fraud, and he wanted this to be turned into a class action lawsuit. And with that, another domino bites the dust. Most of those who invested money into Theranos decided not to sue, but rather they were given some extra shares of stock, which surprises me, but... I guess Theranos hadn't completely tanked when it came to its valuation, at least not yet, maybe. But they had to pinky swear that they were not ever going to sue Theranos if they were going to accept more shares. The only huge investor that did not do this was John Kerry-Rue's big boss man, Rupert Murdoch. He decided that he needed some tax write-offs and he wanted to sell his shares of Theranos back to them for a dollar so he could use that loss to offset all of his other massively massive gains. Because when you're the 71st richest person in the world, $100 million is no big deal. And apparently, David Boys and Elizabeth got into a little bit of a dust-up regarding what the best way was to handle all of her problems with the feds. So he ended up telling Elizabeth to take her little blood box and shove it. A couple of months later, he also resigned from the board of directors. Elizabeth found another prestigious law firm to represent her and Theranos. Heather King, Theranos' in-home counsel, had also left and rejoined David Boyce's law firm. Walgreens, of course, was the first and only company who went all in with Theranos and actually started doing business with the general public using Theranos' equipment and labs, ostensibly. When all was said and done, the company had dropped $140 million into Theranos, and that was an expensive case of FOMO. And they ended up filing their lawsuit too, breach of contract pretty much, and in the complaint, Walgreens alleged that their goals were to help people, not harm people. And with their lawsuit, there went yet another domino. 
Elizabeth attempted to appeal her two-year ban from working in the laboratory industry, but ended up closing both of Theranos' labs, the one in California and one in Arizona. The Arizona lab never had or used any Edison's or mini labs, only commercially available blood analyzers. That lab had also been inspected by the CMS and was full of infractions, just like the California one. The state of Arizona went after Theranos to pay back into a fund a total of 76,217 patients who had blood tests run through their wellness centers at a cost of $465 million, which averages out to approximately $61 per person. Earlier, I stated that tens of thousands of blood tests run for a period of two years were avoided. The total number of tests in both California and Arizona would eventually top 1 million to be voided. But there was no real way of tracking what harm, if any, was done to patients. Though there were about 10 lawsuits filed in the wake of Theranos and Elizabeth getting shut down. But those were eventually rolled up into a class action lawsuit in Arizona. As of the first week of January of this year, when Elizabeth was convicted, the case, the class action case, was still making its way through the court system. At this time, as it stands, the suit is seeking $5 million for more than 100 plaintiffs, according to the Phoenix News Times. While Elizabeth was convicted, I think I mentioned earlier that the four convictions that she was found guilty of had to do with duping investors. She was acquitted on the fraud counts involving patients. There were a total of four of those as well. And then there were no verdicts on three remaining counts that were again related to investor fraud. The article mentioned a patient named Brittany Gould, who is part of the class action lawsuit. She's from Mesa, Arizona, and she was pregnant when she got a blood draw conducted at an area wellness center. The results that she received from her Theranos blood test indicated that she was at an extremely high risk of losing the baby, or possibly in the throes of a miscarriage. But the results were faulty, and she did go on to have her baby. But the experience took its toll on Brittany because she had suffered a number of miscarriages with previous pregnancies. So the harm done, there is no real measurement of what all that was and is, but it is punitive and she deserves to be compensated. At least I think she does. The attorney representing the patients in the class action lawsuit stated, quote, people were diagnosed falsely with serious conditions. People took medications that they weren't supposed to take as a result. This is not your run-of-the-mill consumer case. The harms here went well beyond just the money that these people paid out of pocket. The attorney also said that Theranos treated people like human guinea pigs. You want to know what I found to be one of the most ridiculously funny answers that Theranos had to this allegation, which they deny? They're denying all of the class action allegations because, get this, they didn't use their own machines for the test. Either that or they relied on finger pricks of blood to run the test. What the actual heck does that mean? Defending yourself against doing something wrong with doing something else wrong. Sonny's attorney used an old-fashioned defense, telling more bald-faced lies. He claimed that there were 7 million tests that Theranos ran that went unchallenged. That claim reminded me of Sonny's exaggerated claim 
that he wrote a million lines of code. The quote from John Carreyrou's book regarding this said, he bragged that he had written a million lines of code. Some employees thought that was preposterous. Sonny had worked at Microsoft, where teams of software engineers had written the Windows operating system at the rate of 1,000 lines of code per year of development. Even if you assumed Sonny was 20 times faster than the Windows developers, it still would have taken him 50 years to do what he claimed. There was another patient who had paid $59 for some lead tests at Walgreens using Theranos' wellness centers, and she ended up receiving a misdiagnosis that she had Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease that can cause an underactive thyroid, or in rarer cases, an overactive thyroid. In the lawsuit, she stated that she did not have the disease and that the misdiagnosis was devastating to her and caused her to make drastic lifestyle changes. It caused her to have to make many doctor's appointments, and she was given prescription medications to treat the disease that she did not have. All of it was unnecessary because of the false result of the blood tests. And on top of that, she was one of the patients that was able to get access to blood tests without needing an order from a doctor because of that Arizona law that Theranos had lobbied so hard for that passed in 2015, which allowed them to get blood tests. And by them, I mean patients. It allowed just anybody to get a blood test whenever they felt like it. The governor of Arizona at the time, Doug Ducey, was a diehard Elizabeth fan too. So who knows what would have happened if Theranos wasn't forced into halting their blood box takeover of the country. They wanted to go coast to coast. They probably would have eventually tried to invade Canada too. Elizabeth was poised to sweep across America with her rubbish. That is until the nosiest reporter in the land got the drop on her and rolled out his expose that swatted her down like she was a mosquito carrying Zika. If you recall, one of the fallen dominoes that we talked about earlier was the $4.65 million that Theranos was ordered to repay to Arizona patients who paid for blood tests at Walgreens. The state's attorney fought for that because protecting customer and their rights was at the heart of the issue, but the class action lawsuit suggested that simply wasn't enough. At times, it took many months, possibly even upwards of a year or more for patients and their doctors to be told that they could not rely on those test results. Other claimants in the lawsuit have said that they were misdiagnosed with a variety of diseases, including Sorgen's syndrome and diabetes and HIV. And Sjorgen's disease, I think that's how it's pronounced, it's S-J-O-G-R-E-N syndrome, is an immune system disorder characterized by dry eyes, dry mouth, and difficulty swallowing. Another claimant alleged that his blood test results showed no indicators of any heart health issues, but in less than a month after he had that blood test, this gentleman had a heart attack. Like I said, the class action lawsuit is pending. They might be waiting for Sunny Sunshine to finish up his trial. The class action case is projected to be finished by the end of September of this year. And Mr. John Carreyrou finished up his book at this point in the timeline by reminding the reader of this. The chances that people would have died from misdiagnoses or wrong medical treatments would have risen exponentially if the company had expanded its blood testing services 
to Walgreens' 8,134 other stores across the country, and that Theranos was on the verge of completing that if it had not been for that email that John received from pathologist Adam Clapper, who wrote in his little-known blog about Theranos after he read about it in that New Yorker article in late 2014. I'll come back to Adam Clapper in a moment. Let me give you a quick rundown of the timeline since John Carreyrou lobbed his first grenade at Theranos in October of 2015. The day after that article, Theranos halted the use of the nanotainer, except they got to keep the herpes. A week later is when Lizzie spoke at the journal conference in Laguna and called the journal a tabloid defending herself and Theranos. Then Henry Kissinger and George Schultz and Sam Nunn were removed from the board of directors and were replaced by hard-hitting attorney David Boyes. It was in November of 2015 that Theranos and Safeway, their partnership, died a very quick and quiet death before it ever came to fruition, but not before they had already invested millions of dollars in building Theranos' day spa-like clinics in their grocery stores. I can't recall reading about it in Carrie Rue's book when that deal actually fell through. We just knew that it didn't get as far as Walgreens had. And speaking of Walgreens, they began pulling back from their plans to continue opening wellness centers across the country. I believe the official count ended at either 41 or 42 locations. All of them were in Arizona with the exception of, I believe, two of them in California. And there was another store not related to Walgreens in Enola, Pennsylvania. Did I say that right? I'm going to look it up because I don't need any grief from people back east. Hold on. Okay, so it is Enola, as far as I can tell. That's the plane that dropped the bomb on Japan. Wasn't that part of the name? I have to verify that. I can't. I'm not a history. I'm not an anything buff, really, but not so much in history either. But anyway, that's what the internet's for, right? So yes, there was a Theranos wellness center, or at least they were taking blood test samples at a store in Enola, Pennsylvania. It was a retail store operated by Blue Cross that was using Theranos for their blood test at their location too. But that's as far as Theranos got retail wise. It was also in January of 2016 that the feds started getting super suspicious of Theranos and officially launched an investigation into the company. The CMS, who had a surprise inspection at the lab in September of 2015 and a follow-up in November, had sent a letter to Theranos that same month telling them that they had 45 problems in 10 days to fix it. Walgreens suspended blood testing services at the Palo Alto location right after that. In March of 2016, the CMS threatened to ban Elizabeth and Sunny from the lab industry for two years after they failed to fix their problems. In May of 2016, Sunny Balwani officially retired, quote-unquote retired. As a part of the board of directors restructuring, three others were added. Fabrizio Bonani, a former executive of Amgen, a biotech firm, former CDC director William Fogue, and former Wells Fargo CEO Richard Kovovich. That same month, Theranos voided two years of blood tests. In June of 2016, Forbes revised the report on Elizabeth's wealth 
from 4.5 billion to 0 billion. Just like the rest of us, right? All of us have a valuation of $0 billion. Unless somebody out there listening is secretly a billionaire, I highly doubt it because I don't think you'd be sitting there listening to this. Forbes also lowered Theranos' valuation from $9 billion to $800 million. So they didn't even give Elizabeth worth a measly $400 million to represent her stake in the company. Also in June, Walgreens closed all of their wellness centers. In July of 2016, the CMS revoked Theranos' certification and license to operate the California lab, and Elizabeth was banned from running a blood lab for two years. The following month, Elizabeth unveiled the mini lab at that science conference, with a new plan being its old plan. Selling the mini lab instead of running their own clinical labs, which would possibly see Elizabeth and Theranos being able to get around the sanctions that the CMS had issued. In October of 2016, Partner Fund Management became the first to sue Theranos for $96.1 million, which they had invested back in February of 2014, the allegation being securities fraud. This lawsuit was settled in May of 2017 for an undisclosed amount. Theranos also laid off 340 employees following the closure of their laboratories and wellness centers while they pivot towards the mini lab. The next month, November of 2016, Walgreens filed their lawsuit against Theranos for breach of contract, seeking to recover the $140 million that they sank into Theranos. That lawsuit was settled in August of 2017. Backing up in January of 2017, Theranos downsized again with another 155 people banished into the pit of former employees, accounting for 41% of the workforce now gone. And it was also during January of 2017 that the Wall Street Journal published a report that Theranos had failed a second lab inspection a few months earlier back in September of 2016. As a result, they closed their only remaining lab. In April of 2017, Theranos agreed and settled to pay the CMS $30,000, along with an agreement to not own or run a clinical lab for two years. Also this month, the Arizona Attorney General and Theranos settled and agreed for Theranos to pay $4.65 million to reimburse Arizona consumers for the money that they paid for Theranos blood tests. There was more to the settlement beyond that money that was going back to the customers, as Theranos was found to be out of compliance with federal regulations and false advertisements that misrepresented their methods, accuracy, and reliability. In March of 2018, the SEC charged Elizabeth and Sonny with quote-unquote massive fraud that involved more than $700 million, though I have seen it stated as being as much as $900 million, from investors through an elaborate years-long fraud in which they exaggerated or made false statements about the company's technology and financial performance. The SEC also accused the two of them of knowing Theranos' proprietary blood analyzer could only do 12 out of the 250 tests that it listed on its website. It was also in March of 2018 that Elizabeth gave up control of Theranos and her stake in the company. Sonny instead fought the charges with his attorney saying, that he accurately represented Theranos to the best of his ability. Then, two months later, in May of 2018, John published Bad Blood. A month later, Elizabeth and Sonny were indicted on federal fraud charges. A few minutes before the charges were announced, 
Theranos announced that Elizabeth had stepped down as the CEO of Theranos and their general counsel, David Taylor, had taken over as CEO. Elizabeth, however, did remain on the board of directors. On Friday, August 31st, 2018, Theranos' remaining employees were laid off, with the exception of a handful of assistants who would eventually join them within a few days. And then, just four months into his tenure as CEO, David Taylor made the announcement via email to Theranos' shareholders that the company intended to dissolve. They had spent those months looking to sell the company, but after dealings with or speaking to about 80 potential buyers, nobody was interested. And then the last domino fell. The value of every investment in Theranos was deemed worthless as of September 4th, 2018. Six months later, the Inventor documentary debuted on HBO, which was directed, produced, and written in part by the same filmmaker behind other documentaries, including Enron, uh, Abuse in the Catholic Church, Lance Armstrong, Steve Jobs, Elian Gonzalez. There are many, many films on his IMDb, too many to name. So it was a bit quiet for the next two years as the cases against Elizabeth and Sonny wound their way through the court system. COVID-19 mandated shutdowns occurred in March of 2020, which also delayed the case and pretty much everything else in the world. In September of 2020, court documents revealed that Elizabeth may be eyeballing mental disease as a defense in her criminal case. But then less than a year after that, new court documents revealed that her defense would be to claim that she was in a years-long abusive relationship with Sonny Balwani. Up until that point, the two of them were set to be tried together, but with the information that Elizabeth was alleging abuse on Sonny's part, their trials were severed. In December of 2020, the trial had been pushed back to July of 2021 because of the pandemic, but in March of 2021, it was revealed that Elizabeth was due to give birth in July of 2021, so the trial was delayed yet again. It finally began in August of 2021, and the highly publicized trial ended in January of 2022, with Elizabeth being found guilty on four out of the 11 charges of fraud, with all of those convictions being related to those who invested in Theranos. She was acquitted of three of the charges, which included conspiracy to defraud patients, and two charges related to patients who were told erroneous blood test results. One of the charges had been tossed out earlier in the trial, and the jury was hung on the remaining three charges. As of this recording, Sunny Balwani is still on trial. The prosecution rested about a week ago. Elizabeth is scheduled to be sentenced this September. She is facing as many as 20 years in prison and fines totaling $250,000. And it's the same for Sunny if convicted. Details of the trial will be in an upcoming addendum episode that we will come back to sometime after Sunny's trial is over, possibly after sentencing. It was a matter of all the right people at just the right time for this to have landed on the desk of John Kerry Rue in the first place. And it is somewhat serendipitous. Dr. Adam Clapper had a small but pivotal role in the story when it came to bringing Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos down. 
Elizabeth knew exactly what she needed to do in order to keep Theranos appearing to be the most legit fake company ever. But because there were those who weren't blinded by turtlenecks, Gucci's, and dollar signs, they could see that there was something strange afoot at Lizzie Wonka's blood box factory. And Dr. Adam Clapper was one of them who saw through it all just by reading that article in The New Yorker, which mostly sang the praises of the company, its leader, and its technology. Dr. Adam had a keen interest in the law. The article I read about him, it said law, but I think he's probably like the rest of us who have an interest in the law too, except we call it true crime. That is how his pathology blog came about in 2012. Dr. Adam wrote about legal issues related to pathology, laboratories, and medicine. And each of his blogs garnered about 4,000 views. Not the biggest audience, but big enough for just the right person to come across it. Joseph Fwiz, the son of Richard Fwiz, one of the characters in the story who had one of the earliest beefs with Elizabeth. Dr. Adams' blog article about Theranos was published on December 17, 2014, 10 months before John Kerry Rue's Wall Street Journal article. When Dr. Adam read the claims about Theranos' technology in The New Yorker, he knew immediately that it wasn't possible, and he stated as much in his blog when he wrote, quote, Until proven otherwise, I'm going to be skeptical of Theranos' claims. He had seen other articles about Theranos, but all of them were praising the company, its impressive CEO, and her illustrious board of directors. Dr. Adam was very well aware of how long it takes for technology to progress and advance in the world of medicine. With his understanding of pathology, the shift Theranos appeared to be making in the lab industry was simply too much, too fast, too soon, and ultimately too good to be believed, and too good to be true. What was it about the New Yorker article in particular that piqued Dr. Adams' skepticism? It was the medical journal, Hematology Reports, that Elizabeth referenced where Theranos had published a study. Elizabeth stated that the study found that Theranos' tests correlated highly with values obtained from standard lab tests. While Dr. Adam was and is familiar with just about all of the established medical journals out there, and he had never heard of hematology reports. When he looked into it, he found it to be a small publication based in Italy that charged people a fee if they wanted to publish in it. And the fact that you have to pay already makes the article unreliable. The study Theranos published only involved six patients. And at that point, Theranos, having been in the business for more than 10 years, and the fact that the study they published included a measly six patients, and pointed to that as proof that their technology worked, was laughable. And Dr. Adam said so in his blog. And then one day, while Googling around the internet, Joseph Fwiz ran across Dr. Adam's blog. You know he and Elizabeth knew each other growing up. If you recall, his parents and Elizabeth's parents were neighbors when they were children. They were sort of friends with a somewhat tenuous relationship as parents and Elizabeth's parents, particularly their fathers. And Joseph and Richard Fwiz had been embroiled in that patent lawsuit Theranos had filed against them. So Joe went and told his dad, at which point Richard turned around and got in touch with Dr. Clapper, 
telling him that he was one of the first, if not the first person, to publicly question Theranos and its technology. Dr. Adam also noticed in his comment section that people did have an understanding that Theranos wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Dr. Adam and Richard connected. Then Richard put him in touch with other Elizabeth doubters in the little club that he had formed, including Rochelle Gibbons, Phyllis Gardner, and Adam Rosendorf. It became clear to Dr. Adam that he was sitting on a pretty big story, but he really wasn't a person qualified to do the kind of investigation that a story like that needed. It needed to be handled by an investigative journalist, and it just so happened that Dr. Clapper knew one personally. John Carreyrou, over at the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Adam had been contacted by numerous journalists over the years from many respected news outlets who were looking to him for his expert opinion when it came to stories involving the healthcare industry. And John Carreyrou had been one of them. Dr. Adam thought about who would be best suited to take on this story. And he decided that John would be the likely candidate. John had been reporting on the healthcare system in the United States for many years. And he was working on a series looking into Medicare fraud when he turned to Dr. Adam for his expertise in his investigation. Dr. Adam found John to be an ethical, trustworthy journalist after working with him on that particular story, describing John as fact-oriented and fact-driven. So after reading the New Yorker article and speaking to Richard Fwiz, he contacted John and told him that Theranos might be a company that he may want to look into because there was something fishy going on over there in California. Ten months later, John published his first article on his investigation into Theranos. That is why, at the end of his book, Dr. Adam Clapper is the last person that John mentioned, having reached out to him just as Walgreens was on the verge of launching Theranos Wellness Centers more than 8,000 more times across the United States. And that, Dreamers, will bring this series, The Tale of a Girl Boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies, to its official close. I will be back in a few weeks with an addendum on the story that will cover some of the details of the United States versus Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. I want to thank you all so much for enjoying this series with me over the past several months. If you waited to binge it all at one time, I hope it was worth the wait. I loved covering this case, but I am ready to move on to the next one. Don't forget to join the California Dreaming Facebook discussion group. Like the page on Facebook. Leave us a review. Follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to support the show and the treat jar for the doggies, check out the show's Patreon, where there are many, many hours of content that you can access for as little as $1 a month. And don't forget to listen past the closing of this episode for a promo from the True Crime Cat Lawyer podcast. Thank you all again so much for listening. Thank you for your support. My puppies want to thank you for all the treats. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. And Blue Gucci's out. Hi, everyone. It's Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. That's right. I've combined my three favorite things into a podcast, cats, true crime, and lawyering. Every other Thursday, my co-host Winston and I bring you a new case from the Pacific Northwest. 
Winston is my sassy sidekick with a mustache who can often be found donning a bow tie. In other words, she's my cat. Winston and I are passionate about true crime and we love doing this podcast. As of this recording, we've released over 30 regular episodes and a few bonus episodes. Our episodes are focused on the victims and sharing their stories, something we take a lot of pride in. We're working hard to produce true crime content in an ethical way. Plus, every quarter, Winston and I donate our ad proceeds and Patreon proceeds to a true crime or animal-related nonprofit organization. If you're from the Pacific Northwest or you just enjoyed true crime, Winston and I would love for you to check out our show. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Good Pods. We hope you'll join us for some true crime in the Pacific Northwest.